You're listening to an audio message from Harvest Bible Chapel in Granger, Indiana. For more information, visit our website at harvestgranger.org. I've asked you to open to the book of Jonah. It's all about a storm, right? And um, if you're new to Christianity, if you're new to church, what a great time to fold in because this little book of the Bible, it is in one of the most obscure parts. It's going to take you a little longer to find it. Go ahead and confess you can't find it and open to the table of contents and find the page number. That's what I have to do. Go ahead and get there because what you'll find is this book, it's only 48 verses, four chapters, 48 verses, but it tells the history of the relationship between God and man. And if you boiled it all down, you could boil it all down to two words. Man does the sinning, God does the chasing to bring him back. Because the story of Jonah is the story of the Bible, and it's my story, it's your story. Grace chases a fugitive from God. In our hearts, there, in every one of our hearts, there's a little Jonah that wants to flee from the presence of God. And because God is gracious, he is always bringing us back. And we learned last week, we kind of left Jonah in the storm last week. Did you notice that? It was kind of a cliffhanger. We just left him in the storm. We're going to pick up the story here in verse 4. But just as a reminder of what we learned last week, sin always invites a storm. And some of you are in a storm right now, and it would be wise of you to ask, are Are things not going well in my life because I'm actually fleeing from God and God is using that storm to show me that he's he's drawing me back to him? Sin always invites a storm and God is so committed to my life that he is committed to sinking every ship that would take me away from him. And there's all kinds of different vehicles that we use to get away from God, and yet God is committed to sinking those ships out of his grace. As we study the book of Jonah, there's this, there's this overarching question that has to be asked. If God called Jonah to go that way, and Jonah said, no, I'm going that way, here's the question. Why didn't God just pick somebody else? Why didn't God just say, bad prophet, sleepy prophet, suicidal prophet, I don't think you're qualified for the job, I'm going to go get somebody that will obey. Have you ever asked that question? And I think that the answer is this. God not only wanted to get something done through Jonah to Nineveh, God wanted to get something done in Jonah. And so because of God's grace to Jonah, he continued to chase him down. And so we're going to see the chase pick up here in verse 4. You ready to read it? This is what it says. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Underline the word God there in verse 5. There is a distinction between our God and the God that they cried out to, and it's distinguished by the little g. They cried out to their gods with little g's. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it up for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. Here's the first lesson we're going to learn. We're going to learn three lessons this morning. The first is this. Your storms reveal your gods with little g's. 
You say, I don't have any gods with little g's. I worship the almighty God of the Bible. Well, that may be true, and I trust it's true of all of us, but even for those of us who have surrendered the lordship of Jesus Christ and worship almighty God with a capital G, there are always gods with little g's competing for our worship. They're always calling out to me and says, come over here, worship me. I will save you. I will give you security. I will give you significance. I will give you satisfaction. And they all hold out false promises because they are false gods with little G's. And Jonah found himself surrounded by these guys that each had their own God. That's ironic, don't you think? Because again, Jonah was not only fleeing from the presence of God, he was fleeing from the presence of these dirty, rotten, pagan sinners who needed to repent in Nineveh. In going the opposite direction, where does Jonah find himself? On a boat with dirty, rotten, pagan sinners who need to repent. And it says these guys are sailors, they're mariners, and we don't know a whole lot about them, but uh, what we do know is they were polytheistic. Do you know what that means? That means they had many different gods. So these guys had a god of the land and a different god of the sea. A god of the sun, a god of the moon, a god of the wind, a god of the water. And they had all these different gods and they had a religion of fear. And when things weren't going well for them, they assumed that God was angry. And when they were the subject of an angry God with a little g, their idea was we have to figure out how to appease this God. So they had a religion of fear. And in order to escape his fury, they came up with all kinds of different ideas about how to remove that anger from the Lord. You see, the storm on the outside of the boat was creating a storm on the inside of their hearts as they tried to figure out how to appease this God. You see, that reveals to us that every person is inherently religious. Did you know that? Every person is a theologian. You say, I'm not a theologian. I don't even believe in God. Yeah, that's your theology. You've just simply made yourself God. And so every person cries out to his own God in times of terror. It may be deep within you, but when you are threatened and when you are fearful, you will cry out to whatever gods you have, even if those gods are yourselves. Because everyone is a theologian, and what you believe about God will be revealed in times terror. We've seen some times of terror this week, haven't we? Our eye has been drawn to what's happening there in Paris as there were those horrible terrorists attacked. And what's happening over there is there is a clash of cultures, there's a clash of ideologies, and I would suggest there's a class of theology going on over there, and it's coming here as well. As a matter of fact, there's a clash of theology going on right here. Are you aware that Paris has kind of declared itself to be a secular nation? What they've said is, we don't want to have any particular religious belief affecting who we are as a people. And so here they are attacked by a very radically religious people. 
And all over social media, we've seen hashtag pray for Paris. But in response to that hashtag, people in Paris have said, don't pray for Paris. Why? Because we are a secular country and we believe that people who believe in prayer are actually the ones who are the problem. And what they're saying is, you cry out to your gods, we'll cry out to our gods, but our gods are going to be gods of self. They're a secular country. Are you aware that America is becoming a more secular country? Um, a couple of weeks ago, I got a call from WSBT, Channel 22 News, here in South Bend, and uh, they had read a report that they found very disturbing. They read a report from the Pew Research uh, Center that said that America is becoming more secular. And they called me to say, are you guys, are you guys depressed? Are, are you guys are you going to like close your doors? I mean, surely there's probably nobody coming to your church. And I'm like... No, we kind of have trouble finding a place for people to sit. And as you read the report, this is what you find. People in America can basically be put into three separate buckets. The first bucket over here is actually growing, and the third bucket over here is actually growing. It's the second bucket, the one in the middle, that is actually in serious decline. So what's the first bucket? Well, it's a category of people that is now termed as the nuns. N-O-N-E-S. These are people that basically said, we have no religious belief. We, have, we don't attach to any particular um, set of, of religious organizations. And these people may be spiritual, but they're not overtly committed to any particular religion. That's the nuns. That group of people in America is growing. The second group that's growing is actually people like you and me that believe that God wrote a book. He has revealed himself through a self-disclosure and told us everything we need to know in order to have a right relationship with him. And that belief in the power of the gospel is changing our lives and affecting the way that we live and how we make our decisions. That group of people in America is actually growing. It's the group in the middle that I would define as, quote-unquote, nominal Christians that is decreasing rapidly. Do you know what a nominal Christian is? A nominal Christian is a Christian who is Christian in name only. Nominal means in name only. They put a religious label on themselves, and they use the word Christian because they realize, well, I'm not, I'm not Muslim, and I'm not an atheist, I'm an American, so I must be a Christian. And these people use the Christian label and they say, yeah, I believe in God, but it has absolutely no impact on their lives. They're not worshiping that God. They're not loving that God. They just use the label. That group of people in our country is decreasing rapidly. And what they're doing is they're moving into one of the other two categories. And as a result of those people dropping the Christian label, that ought to be something that ought to make the atheist and the genuine Christians really happy. That's one thing we can agree about. Hey, quit using our label if you're not going to truly, authentically worship our God with a capital G. And so aren't you glad that we are becoming more distinct? This is what I told the reporter. Christians may be fewer, but they will be truer. 
Because now you can't hide behind the Christian label. You're going to be smoked out as to whether or not you genuinely believe in the God of the Bible. Everybody's a theologian. And it may be that your theology makes yourself God or your theology says, I need a God who can actually save me and I don't have the resources. But in times of crisis, your storms reveal your gods. So what's the difference between the God of the Bible and the God that would provoke Islamic religious terrorism? Well, our God is a God of love. The God of Islam is a God of fear. Our God is a God of grace and forgiveness and mercy and a God who actually sacrificed himself in order to save us. The God of Islam is is not a God of grace, not a God of love. There's no atonement. There's no savior. In Islam, there's only submission. That's what the name Islam means to be, is to submit. And if you won't submit, there's no assurance that you would have eternal life. And even if you do submit, there's no assurance because there's no promise of grace and forgiveness to cover your sin. There's only one assurance. If you're a Muslim and you want to go to heaven, there's only one guaranteed way to get there. Do you know what that is? To martyr yourself in jihad. And so those that would take that religion to an extreme would say, I want assurance of eternal life. And so they are willing to die or even to kill to gain eternal life. The God of Christianity is the only faith system that says, our God died to ensure that we would have eternal life. And he was resurrected and he lives forever to forgive and to extend grace to all fugitives that would run away from him. He's so committed to us, he is willing to die rather than for us to be separated from him forever. That's the difference between our two gods. And so we need to understand we have a God who can save. But so many other gods are competing for our attention. And we so often, even as people who name the name of Christ, run to gods of security or gods of stuff and just said, if I could just get a nicer car or an upgrade on my cell phone or maybe a little better um, uh, entertainment package on the weekend, then somehow I would feel better about myself. Those are false gods. And in times of crisis, in times of fear, it will expose what kinds of gods you really have. Who's your God? I want you to look down here at verse 6. It says, So the captain of the ship came to him and said, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise and call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. So here is Jonah asleep in the bottom of the boat while the storm is raging all around him. And it's the pagan captain who comes to the Hebrew prophet and says, Wake up! If you don't start seeking God, we're all going to die. Now, I find that quite ironic because that's exactly the message that God told Jonah he was supposed to deliver to Nineveh. And instead of preaching that message, he is asleep. 
And God's using the pagan to try to get the attention of the guy that says he worships God. Unfortunately, there's a lot of people like Jonah here in this church today. You are oblivious to the storm of God's judgment that's going on and the impending danger that you are in. And instead of waking up, you're asleep in the midst of the storm. And the message God has for you this morning is, what's it going to take for God to get your attention? And stop running and sleeping while you should be seeking the God who is worthy of your worship. I announced to you tonight at 6 o'clock we're gathering for prayer. Some of you yawned your way through that because you've got other things to do. And the reason you're not going to be here is because you're asleep and you don't realize how desperately we need to seek the Lord. Wake up! Arise! Seek the Lord and come tonight even to be a part of what God's doing in our church. Here's the second lesson we're going to learn from Jonah. It's this. Your sin affects your companions. Your sin affects your companions. Look here at verse 7. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot, lo and behold, fell on Jonah. So what's this business about casting lots? Well, here's what would happen. Back in the day, before the Bible was completed, before we have better ways of seeking the Lord, knowing his direction for our life, here's what they would do. They would take two stones, flat stones, they would paint one side black, they would paint the other side white, and they would throw these two stones. If one of the stones landed white and one of the stones landed black, they knew that means we have to roll again. And so they would throw the stones, and if they were both black, that would be the answer they would assume no. If they were both white, they would assume the answer is yes. And so can you imagine these sailors walking around the boat? Like, we got to find out who to blame for this storm we're in. And so they walk up to a sailor and they cast it. Apparently it came up, no. And they walk up to another sailor, it came up, no. And then they get to Jonah. And they throw the stones and it comes up, yes. And God was saying, there's your guy right there. That's him. That's the guy you need to blame right there. And God uh, apparently even used this weird way to identify. And the Bible even says that God would, would do that at times. In Proverbs 16, verse 33, he said this, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Now, I would not recommend us using that in our modern day. Can you imagine some single lady in this church walking up to some good-looking single guy? Boom. Yes, we're in love. You know, that, that's probably not the way we want to go about that, okay? Listen, we have the Bible now. We have the Holy Spirit. We have the church. We have counselors. We have parents. We have a lot of different ways of making our decisions. But understand, no matter what you're doing, the Lord is in complete control, right? So back in this day, he uses this to identify Jonah is accountable. Jonah is responsible for what's going on. And everything these sailors were facing was Jonah's fault. He was to be held accountable because it was Jonah's sin that was affecting his companions. I want to talk to you right now as if 
I'm the sailor and you're Jonah. Because the truth of the matter is, I am thinking of names and faces right now. I actually have to be careful. Because I know of what's going on in some of your lives. I know the storms that you're facing. I know the chaos that you are creating. I know the havoc that you are causing. And for some reason, you're willing to endure all of that pain and suffering yourself because of your sin. But you haven't woken up to the reality to the chaos you are creating for the people that love you. And I just want to say to you, fugitive from God, understand what's going on. I want you to look here at verse 8. It says, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country and what people are you? I would suggest those are great questions to ask people that would want to immigrate into our country as well and just say, hey, there's some questions that might want to be asked when we figure out who you really are. What those questions do is they draw out two things, identity and responsibility. And I'm going to ask you these questions because some of you are running from God and you are creating chaos, not only in your life, but in the lives of others. So can I ask you this? Do you know your sin is creating chaos for others? Or are you asleep? Do you see the ways that your disobedience, your rebellion, your hard heart, your sin is creating chaos for the people you love? Who are these people? Your parents your brothers and sisters, your children, the people you work with, the people you go to school with, your small group, your pastors, your church, your community, your country is feeling the effects of your sin. And for some reason, you don't want to wake up and Admit responsibility, but you're the problem in the same way that Jonah was the problem. They said, tell us on whose account this storm has come. And what they're doing is they are calling him to account. And I'm calling you to account. Some of you are creating chaos for others, and you need to wake up and accept the responsibility, and turn your life around. If you're not willing to do it for yourself, do it for those you love. Here's the second question. Why aren't you doing your job? That's what they asked Jonah. What is your occupation? Now, can you imagine these sailors asking Jonah that question? Um, what do you do for a living? I'm a prophet. Really, a prophet? We're not familiar with that. What's a job description of a prophet? Obey God. Get the message right. Get the message out. And them kind of scratching their head. He's like, you know, I don't see anywhere on your job description that it involves like a cruise to Tarshish. So why aren't you doing your job? You only had one 
job. And you're failing at your job. We didn't ask you to do some big thing. We asked you to do this. Like, well, you know, I didn't really like that assignment. And, you know, I just, people are hard to work with there. And I just don't really feel, I just, I just didn't really connect with the people that were doing that. And so I don't, I don't really want to do that job. Jay, just do your job. Like, well, I did my job for a while and it got hard and nobody even really appreciated it. I never got thanked for it. Just do your job. It's like, well, I didn't want that job. I wanted, I wanted this job. I see people that have these other distinguished jobs. I wanted that job. This job was dirty and messy and slimy and I got my hands dirty. Just do your job. Like, what, I want another job. Do you think that God may have given you that job? to teach you some things and prove yourself faithful that if you did that job well, God would give you a different job? Just do your job. And why aren't you doing your job? Well, it doesn't pay that well. As a matter of fact, they don't even pay me at all. Just do your job. You heard this morning, we have some job openings here at church. It doesn't pay anything. You might get your hands literally dirty back there in the nursery. And you may not be thanked and appreciated. It may be far below your pay grade. But God's calling you to do a job. It may not be there. It may be something else. Are you doing your job? Why'd you stop? Do your job. You only had one job. Number three, have you forgotten where you came from? That's the next question they ask there in verse 8. It says, where did you come from? You know what they were asking? Not just what geopolitical boundaries you came from, but what is your place of origin? What's been in your past? Do you remember how good God has been to you in the past? Do you remember how God used you in the past? Do you remember how sweet the presence of God was in the past? Do you remember where you came from? Don't you want to get back there? Why did you even leave? Where do you come from? I would ask you that this morning. What brought you here? Where did you come from? Do you need to get back there? Here's the fourth question. Why are you isolating yourself from community? That's what they asked him. They said, what is your country? Again, that's not talking about geopolitical boundaries. That's talking about what is your heritage? What is your place of origin? What is the shared history and the shared values of people that you belong to? And why did you leave? Some of you have left family. Some of you have left spouses. Some of you have left parents because you thought you could do it better on your own. I don't need these people. And you've become independent and autonomous. How's that working out for you? And where are you going to go the next time you have a crisis? Who are you going to lean on without community? And why are you isolating yourself from the people that know you, love you, care for you, and need to encourage and at times rebuke you? That's the value of community. Here's the fifth question. Have you forgotten who is depending on you? They ask him that at the end of verse 8. Of what people are you? People. 
People are depending on you. Your children are depending upon you. Let me just say this to the men in this room. If you are a husband, if you are a father, your wife is looking to you to be a man of character and integrity and to provide and protect her. She is depending upon you to be a man of God who is not a fugitive from God, not running from God, but seeking to get in the presence of God. If you are a father, do you understand that your children are depending upon you? You say, don't act like they're depending upon me. They don't listen to me anymore. Of course they don't listen to you anymore. They're teenagers. Teenagers don't listen to you. They absorb you. And they become you. And if you are not leading and you're not protecting and you're not providing and if you are not seeking God, that's the direction they're going to go to. They will be fugitives from God if you are not headed in the right direction. And so these sailors ask Jonah questions of identity. Who are you? This is not who you are. And you are not in the place you're supposed to be. And I would say that to so many of you. When are you going to wake up and realize the chaos that you're causing people that love you and know you best? Here's the third lesson. Your effort won't solve your problem. You say, well, I just, I don't really know what to do. I've gone so far away from God and I just don't really know how to turn it around. I, I've been so, so far away from God, I don't even know really how to get back to Him. I, I guess I'll try harder. Well, that's a strategy that the sailors use. Look here in verse 11. Then they said to Him, What shall we do to you that the sea may be quiet that, that the sea may quiet down for us? And the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And they said, and he said, Jonah said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down, for I know it's because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Do you realize what happened here? Jonah identified who he was. As a matter of fact, he answered some of those questions. I forgot to read it back here in verse 10, but look at what he says. Verse 9, he says, he said to them in answer to their questions, I am a Hebrew, I fear the Lord. Eh, ish. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He gives him, he gives them his identity as a fearer-ish of, of the God of heaven. Okay, these sailors didn't have a category for that. They knew about the God of the land and the God of the sea, but those were different gods, and they kind of compete. And, and Noah's saying, I, am, I, I fear the Lord who is the God of the heaven and the sea. And they went, whoa, that God? I mean, the God, the God with the big G? And they looked at him like, if you're, if you're the God that follows that guy, what are you doing on our boat? You... You've got to repent or, or we're all going to die. It, now, it was foolish in their minds for them to flee from the presence of God with little g, but it was suicidal in their minds for them to flee from the God with the big G. And so they're like, we got we to do something to you. 
And so they ask, what, what do we have to do to you to get God, with the big G, not to be angry with us? Jonah gave them an answer, but Jonah gave them a wrong answer. He gave them a suicidal answer. Notice, the right answer to that question was, all you have to do is turn the boat in the opposite direction, and I'm pretty sure that the wind and the waves will stop. If I could get headed back in the direction that God has called me to, then I'm pretty sure we'll all be safe. But Jonah would rather die than repent. And so he says, just throw me over. My life is worthless. Nobody loves me. I'll never be able to get my act together. And so I'm just better off dead. They just throw me overboard. Now, these guys apparently were more compassionate on Jonah than Jonah was on them, and so they didn't do it. They said, well, there's got to be a better answer. And so this is what they did in verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. They said, okay, guys, we got to give it all we've got. I know the wind's blowing us in one direction, but we've got to go down. Everybody grab an oar and let's all try to work a little harder to see if we can save ourselves. Do you understand that that is the default mode of the human heart? When you realize that you are moving in the opposite direction of God and that God is displeased with your life, you know what we think? You know what? I, I got to go to church more. I, I, I got to stop cussing. Um, maybe I'll give something offering this week. Maybe I'll read my Bible. Maybe I'll join a small group. Maybe, maybe I'll, I, I know, God, I, I, I'll go to church even if it kills me. God, just kill me. I'd rather. No, no, I'll go to church and we row harder. Do you know what that is? That is a religion of fear. And do you know what the next thing we'll do? We start making promises to God so that we can use God to make our lives easier. And that's exactly what the sailors did next. Look at verse 14. They cried out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done it as you pleased. You know what they were doing? They were praying a prayer of terror. Do you know what the prayer of terror is? It's where you pray in order to use God to make your situation better. The prayer of terror is not a prayer of faith. The prayer of faith is this, Lord, I'll go anywhere and I'll do anything. I trust you. Use me. The prayer of terror uses God. The prayer of faith says, God, use me. I think these guys were praying a prayer of terror. They were kind of getting their act together, but I don't think they were quite at the level of faith. And so finally, we come down here to verse 15. They rode as hard as they could. That didn't work. Never does. They prayed a little harder. That didn't seem to work. And so finally, they take Jonah's advice 
And notice in verse 15, they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Maybe now they're getting a little closer to the prayer of faith, but I want you to notice what is happening here. They realized that they were facing the impending judgment of God. Do you understand that we are all the sailors in the boat in relation to God? All of us outside of Jesus Christ are facing the impending judgment of God because of our sin. We're the sailors. We're the polytheist. We all have our own little God and our own little image. We're those sailors. And they began to listen to Jonah, and Jonah came up with this idea, hey, if you want to divert the judgment of God, all you have to do is throw me into the ocean, and the judgment of God will follow me into the sea, and he will leave you alone, and you will be saved. So Jonah says this, if you kill me, you will save yourselves. Does that sound like another story in the Bible? Do you understand the story of Jesus Christ? It's very similar to the story that we're reading here in Jonah. You see, Jonah said, if you throw me in, I'll experience the wrath of God and you guys won't. Do you know that one day Jesus Christ came to this earth and he said, I am willing to die for you so that you will not face the judgment of God. Now, Jonah couldn't die for any man's sin because Jonah was a sinner himself. But Jesus Christ was not a sinner. These sailors said to God in their prayer, God, don't blame us for Jonah's sin. We're innocent. He's guilty. You know what Jesus said? Hey, God, would you blame me even though I am innocent for the sin of those who are guilty? And God, would you treat those who are guilty as though they were innocent? This is the story of the gospel. And we read about it over in the New Testament in Romans chapter 5. Romans 5, 7, and 8 says this, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. I would venture to say that some of you love your spouse, love your children, that if it came to it, you would die for them. That's what this verse is acknowledging. But then it goes on and says Jesus did something beyond that. God showed us his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, there was nothing lovable about us. Christ died for us. The most important word in the Bible is that little three-letter word, for. Christ didn't just die. He died for sinners. Christ threw himself overboard into the judgment of God so that the judgment of God would be diverted from us who deserved his judgment. And that ought to evoke incredible obedience in us since therefore we have now been justified by his blood much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath 
of God. He bled out on that cross. He gave his life as a sacrifice for those who deserved his judgment. Do you see back in Jonah in verse 16 what these sailors did? It says they feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice. Do you understand that what they did, we don't even know how they knew to do this, but as they were saved, blood was shed. And it was pointing to God was giving us 700 years before Christ in the story of Jonah an understanding that in order to be saved, there has to be a substitute sacrifice. Jonah was not a good enough sacrifice. But there is a true and better Jonah. His name is Jesus. To save all of us who are in the boat of our sin and need the judgment of God to be diverted. Now, how can you not know that story? How can you know that story and flee from a God who is that gracious? Some of us have been causing such chaos in our lives. We're in the middle of a storm. God is chasing us, and he is chasing us with this story. He loves you so much. He doesn't want your ship to sink. But you've got to repent. You've got to turn around. You've got to come back to him. Can I just invite you to pray with me right now? Just bow your heads, close your eyes. And before we move along here, What's God said to you this morning? Have you seen faces of people who are being affected by your sin? Has God, by his spirit, kind of cast those lots right at you and said, that's the guy right there? He's put his finger on you. Are you going to live another week fleeing from the presence of God? Are you going to continue to sleep while God wants you to get up and seek Him? He's a God of grace. He's a God of forgiveness. No matter how far you have fled, He invites you back to Him this morning. Why don't you just open your heart to Him right now and say, Lord, I've been doing my own thing. My sin's creating chaos for the people that I love and know. God, today, I am turning it around. I'm going to stop seeking gods with little G's to be my Savior. Once and for all, I'm trusting you. If that's you here this morning, open up your heart and tell him that. Say, Lord, today's my day. I'm waking up turning it around. Thank you for your forgiveness. I repent. Father, I pray for uh, friends here today who may have come in very far from you and, and today you've spoken through your word. We're all theologians and so often we have bad theology. We run in directions to saviors that can't save. And today, God, we, we trust in you. I pray for individuals here today that today will be the first day 
that they're moving in the right direction. They're going to turn around. God, give them courage to acknowledge that to a friend, to a pastor here at the end of the service. And God, I pray that um, they would see as a result that the, st- the, the storm will calm. And that God, you'll begin to put back together the pieces of their life. Their, their life would be a, a life that is filled with your presence, evidenced by your grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.